Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Hi. 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 Thanks for joining. Oh, that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was... Hi. Let's start by... George is talking first and then we're all saying hi together after us. We got it. No, no, hi. Go, George, go. Hi, I'm Dr. George Saltoris, and welcome to Reasonable and Necessary, Australia's premier podcast series on the National Disability Insurance Scheme, brought to you by the Solar Foundation. I'm coming to you from the Lanzu land, and pay my respects to the traditional owners and elders, past, present, and emerging. But before we go any further, please do me a favour and hit the like button, subscribe to the channel and select the notification bell so that you can be notified of future episodes. In today's episode, we will dive deep into the changes put forward by the NJS Review. We'll talk to experts who have analysed the final report to understand if these changes will make our lives better or worse. And just a warning, some of the discussion might be quite distressing to some people. Keep in mind that these are only recommendations and they are not government policies. The government has committed to involvement with disabilities, to co-design any changes to the NDIS. And with that in mind, let's get into it. Let's go around and introduce ourselves. I'll start with you, Helen. Hi, George. Great to be back with you. So I'm Helen Dickinson. I'm Professor of Public Service Research at the University of New South Wales, um, where I do a bunch of research about disability policies and services. Uh, and I join you today from the land of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people. And Kavanaugh. Hi, um, George again. I'm um, a Professor of Disability Health at the University of Melbourne and I've uh, been on your show a few times talking about COVID. Um, and I research around the health of people with disabilities and health and social policy. Welcome. Hey, George, Peter. I'm in Mingen, Brisbane. I've been around since the early days of institutional reform back in the 70s, um, involved primarily at that time getting people out of the big institutions in Queensland um, and have pretty much done that same work for the last 50 years. Um, the most recent being focused on the kind of strategies and techniques and structures that enable us to build safe and sustainable, very individualised and personalised supports around people without an over-reliance on um, the traditional service providers and the traditional models. Welcome to that. Hey. Samantha Connor. Hi, Dr. George. I'm Sam Connor. I'm disabled. I have a background of being passionate about disability rights and I'm former uh, president and vice president of People with Disability Australia and a bunch of other boards. Um, yeah, there's. Uh, I live in lots of places and currently near Newcastle in New South Wales. Really looking forward to having this chat today. Welcome, Sam. Hi, nice to see you all. My name is Meredith. I work have worked for 40 years across um, the sector in aged care, disability and mental health. And I'm passionate about supported decision-making. I've worked in the substitute decision-making space um, 
and also for platforms and for not-for-profits. I'm really committed to the concept of choice and control and quality and safety and a bit like Peter said, creating really personalised supports for people that make big changes to our lives but also creating abundance so that we all have a village around us and we feel like we belong. That's my aim. Great to be here, George. Thanks for having me. Thank you for us. We've got five big changes that we're going to analyse and examine and get to the bottom of. And we're going to start with quality and safeguards and the new requirement that people only use registered providers or involved providers for their supports. Helen, can you please explain how this is supposed to work? Yeah, sure. So at the moment, you, you can manage an NDIS plan in three different ways. So either the NDIA, the agency manages your plan, or you work with a plan manager or you self-manage that plan. And if you choose to self-manage or plan manage, then at the moment you can use providers who aren't registered with the Quality and Safeguards Commission. Now, there's a few little exceptions to that around services like services that have restricted practices in or specialist disability accommodation. They're higher risk, so they need to be delivered by a registered provider. But generally, if you um, uh, self-manage or plan manage, then, then you can choose from either registered or unregistered providers. What the NDIS review wants to do is, is change the legislation that underpins the scheme, and it'll remove that link between how you manage the plan and the registration status of, of providers. And that means that NDIS providers won't, uh, NDIS participants won't be able to use unregistered providers um, any longer. And the review also suggests developing a, a new online process to make it easier for people um, to make payments for services. And along with the new navigator role that I think we'll probably talk about later, that'll mean that there won't be a need for plan management in the future. And so what will happen instead is all providers in the NDIS are going to take place in um, what's very snappily called um, a new graduate, graduated risk proportionate regulatory model for registration. Um, basically, that means that the process will decide whether a service or support is high risk, medium risk, low risk or lowest risk. And that decision will be made um, depending on the types of services that are being delivered. And there'll be different processes around regulation um, for providers who are, who are providing those different levels of, of risk services. So I think really importantly for me there, the risk is being decided in terms of the sort of service that's being delivered rather than the ability of the participant um, to manage that risk. And so it, what it will mean is that all providers will need to be registered um, or if the services are seen as being lowest risk, so that's probably stuff like gardeners and cleaners, then those providers will need to enrol to deliver those services. So in a really practical sense, what it basically means is that plan management will be phased out over time um, and any providers who aren't um, registered will need to become registered or enrolled if NDIS participants are going to buy services from them. Helen, what happened to person uh, control under the NDIS? This sounds like a very, very concerning development. Like the, I remember the NDIS was supposed to uh, put people disabilities in the driver's seat and say that we, we knew what's best for us and what supports we suited us the best. Why, why does the NDIS really want to take that away from us? 
Look, I think there's a couple of different reasons suggested in in the review, and and you know I, I can't speak for the authors of the review, but I think they would probably say in response to that that they're not taking your choice and control away. But there's some things that maybe we'll talk about that I think it will have some implications for that. Um, back when the scheme was designed, it was thought that basically um, most people would be agency managed, right? And then in the middle of last year, if you look at the figures, I think something like 29% of um, NDIS participants self-managed and 60% used the plan manager. So we've seen a, a lot more plan management than um, was initially um, anticipated. And then if you look at the numbers of providers, this is something the review seems quite concerned about because they say, well, there's 154,000 unregistered providers in the NDIS market and there's only 16,000 registered providers. So we've got this big number of kind of unregistered providers in, in the system and that wasn't ever anticipated. I think we've got to be a bit careful with those numbers there because I think if you actually follow where the money's spent, um, it shows a bit of a, a different picture. So I think something like... 74% of NDIS payments last year went to registered providers with, with 26% going to unregistered providers. So unregistered providers tend to be smaller, um, have lower amounts spent with them than with registered providers. And, and the review basically argues that there's some services that are being delivered by unregistered providers like supported independent, independent living um, and early childhood supports that they say are quite high risk and that there isn't enough oversight of those services at the moment where they're being um, delivered by unregistered providers. So, you know, the Quality and Safeguards Commission doesn't have visibility over the market. It can't monitor it effectively. It can't intervene to prevent harm and, and to kind of encourage things like um, quality improvement. And, and so the review sort of says, basically, what we've got is unregistered providers flying under the radar and that if we make all providers register, this will give the Commission better ability to intervene in improving services um, and, and managing the market. And, and the review also makes, I think, some, you know, potentially problematic statements about the ability of participants to manage risk in delivery of services. So the review basically says that it's worried that people with disabilities don't always understand their rights and, and risks. And they think that it's unreasonable for people with disability to manage all the risks in, in services and that we don't have the same sort of system in, in other areas like aged care uh, and things like that. As I say, I've got some concerns over over those observations. But I think the other kind of potential driving force in this is, I think if you look at a lot of the submissions to the NDIS review that come from registered providers, a lot of those say that they feel that it's not fair that they have to go through a registration process and an audit process. Um, it can be an expensive and a time-consuming process, um, and unregistered providers don't need to go through that. So there are some submissions from some registered providers who are saying, look, you know, if this carries on in the future, we might be forced to deregister our services um, to save costs. And so the review sort of says basically that if everybody registers or enrolls and it puts providers on an equal um, footing. So I think there's probably been some sort of fairly strong lobbying from registered providers in, in that process as well. So the review says it's all about safety and about putting providers on an equal footing and because they're worried about people being able to manage risk. What do you think though, Helen? You've done research in this area, um, and you're a very, yeah. you're a very respected uh, academic, and you, you've looked at this. Do you think it is a positive change? Um, 
I think you can look at it and see there could be a couple of positives and then a bunch of negatives as well. So I think, you know, one of the positives is we would actually have a sense of who the care workforce is and worker screening would be done in a more coordinated way. And so, you know, knowing how, who the care workforce is, is, is a really is a really good thing to have, for example, in emergencies. So if we think back to the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, we didn't know who the care workforce was, couldn't roll out information about infection control and, and things like that. So that, this is one way to identify that. I'm not sure this is the only route to do it through, but that's one way um, to do that. And I think we do need to do something about supporting people in things like supported independent living because we know that we know that the agency and the commission have lost visibility of some people who have quite large kind of packages um, who are living in spaces that are not safe. We know that there's there's some violence and and neglect around some of those spaces. So I think we need to do something. Um, uh, about about those sorts of um, services. But I think there's a, a number of potential kind of negatives that come out of this as well. And, and one of the things really striking is the review says itself, registration isn't guarantee of quality or safety. So it actively acknowledges that, you know, while the, the reason it's introducing this is all about quality and safety, actually registration won't guarantee that. And so, you know, anything that is developed is going to have to not just rely on registration, it's going to need audit processes, it's going to need a whole lot of things changed to make sure that people are actually safe in, in services. Um, and in research we did last year that you talked about, um, George, one of the reasons people told us that they use unregistered providers is because they've often had negative experience with registered providers, um, that they're not given enough choice and control over services. And so I think if the changes are going to go ahead, there'll need to be some really careful thought given to making sure that, you know, in taking this action around unregistered providers, there's some stuff done to actually improve how registered providers act that they actually respect choices and preference of NDIS participants and don't just deliver the sorts of services that, that they want to deliver. I think there's a real danger that if um, you know if providers don't register or enroll, we're going to see even bigger gaps in the market. And we, we know that there's already some substantial um, gaps there. So we're going to see a shortage of, of, of workforce and, and of services. And I think we'll particularly feel that in re regional and remote areas where, you know, at the moment in a number of those areas, there are no or very few registered providers. So we could see these real um, gaps um, emerge. And there's a bunch of people who have developed support arrangements over many, many years. They've given really careful thought to how to, you know, set those up. They're really innovative and they're often lower cost than registered providers. And, and I think the review sort of says, look, yes, this is a potential risk for, you know, some people, particularly people who self-manage. We don't really have any answers around this and we're going to need to do some more consultation um, with that group. I think there's also some risks around cost. Um, we know that often registered providers come with a bit of a disability tax. So um, at the moment, I think you'll often find if you go and get um, different forms of therapy, if you go to a registered um, provider for therapy, you'll often get charged a slightly higher rate um, than you would do from an unregistered one. And it's also really important to remember that that organisation might be unregistered with the NDIS, but it's registered with a professional body that the therapist is a part of. So this kind of argument that these are unregistered is not entirely kind of true for all, all um, services um, as well. And similarly, if you buy equipment or technology from a registered provider, you often find that they're a lot more expensive than those that you get in the broader um, market. So I think cost is going to be a real consideration um, here. And, and I guess my final concern is about 
if we make people use just registered providers, are we going to segregate people into disability-only services? And that's going to push people further away from the communities that they should be embedded um, within. And, um, you know, thinking back to the research that we did when we asked people why they use unregistered providers, often they said it's, well, you know, I want to get gardening or cleaning or whatever services from the sorts of organizations that other people use. I don't need them to, you know, they don't have to know that I'm an NDIS participant or I'm a person with a disability. But in this new system, if you're going to go and get services from those, you will have to, if they're not already registered or enrolled, you'd have to ask those organizations to go through that process in order to use that. And in that process, you're going to have to disclose that you're an NDIS uh, participant as, as well. So, Look, I think, you know, if we can sort out some stuff around kind of safety um, and and think about the care workforce, I think there could be some real positives, but I think there's some potentially negative impacts of, of these suggestions as well. And Kevin, as your family uses unregistered providers, how do you feel about this recommendation? Yeah, so when I first saw it, I was, uh, as you know, George, pretty pretty worried because we've spent a very long time building a group of workers around my son who are innovative and have enabled a kind of life I could only imagine for him five years ago. Um, so just to give you some background to that, um, my son has a, um, autism and a significant intellectual disability and since he's left school has discovered a passion for art now on his uh, sold all, first sold-out show in August and uh, another show this week, um, and uh, we could never have imagined that. But his workers are a bunch of artists who saw his capacity and skills, something that had not happened in any kind of mainstream provider setting where he clearly demonstrated that he didn't want to be there because he would walk off. Of course, that behaviour was problematised as, as absconding, but actually it was a form of communication. So we've seen a transformation in his life by being able to choose choose workers that have enabled him to find a passion, to earn money mowing lawns, all things that anyone at school would have told him wasn't going to happen. Um, and so it really is a good news story of the NDIS. Um, some of those workers have been with us for nearly nine years in different capacities, um, and nearly all of them um, are artists. <laughs> Um, and creative types himself, themselves. Uh, the other thing that has enabled, and I think this comes back to the safeguarding issue, is because he's so deeply embedded now in an artistic community in our local area, along with that comes a lot of safeguarding. So he is deeply included in community, and I go if I go out with him in the local area, he knows way more people than I do. Um, and they're all excited to see him. So I think my concern is that if that choice is taken away, and particularly for someone like my son, who's often characterised as at high risk, but actually one of the things I've noted is people in the community talk about having seen Deck out and how happy he looks or how he doesn't look. So there's a whole bunch of ways in which we can, you know, we have someone who's overseeing that bunch of workers who meet together. They week once a month to talk about what they're doing with with deck and you know what how they how they're communicating and what they've seen you know all of the share information and share knowledge and i think these are all ways to building natural safeguards um, that are really really important you know it's been a lot of work for us but i would like i know that his life is is very very different than if he had have gone down a different path 
Um, I agree with what Helen and Anna are saying, and I also use um, unregistered providers as well as registered um, with my family, and that's because her needs differ at different times. So we always have a scaffolded team. But when she's really well, she needs different people. So a bit like Anne's story, you know, she's about to go to university, which is something that we never thought would happen. And she's, I've had a real challenge getting registered providers to help her get through her HSC and and manage the things that she wants to do. So there's been a no, that's not what we do, rather than we'll lean into that. So finding, you know, young university students who look just like her, who, un, who have lived experience um, often of, of mental health, but who can lean into those moments and help and help her understand that she can get through that has been really, really important. And so I think getting back to what you talked about, Anne, that to me, that's just that's regulation. You've created, um, you've created all of the quality and governance that you need to create the safeguards around your son. And that's what I think is missing here. And I, I, I think it's important to say that the review does talk about natural safeguards and the need for circle support and, and supported decision making but that seems to sit you know quite differently to this other piece of oh and but everyone has to be registered now i think our challenge is we don't yet know what that means but i think it's a blunt instrument to say that a service defines actually what type of, reg of re regulation that you need because you know, all of us would put in our own um, systems really well. George and I talk a lot about a safeguarding plan as a potential solution where, you know, you say, here's my, like George does, here's the training I do for my staff, here's my quality systems, here's my reporting functions, here's how I recruit. So, you know, someone like George doing that is obviously different to others. So whatever solution we come up with, and I we have many it has to be inclusive of everybody which means that the supports would increase for people who don't have family or supports around them they would need different levels of support to co-regulate and co-produce their plans so we have to lean into this human rights piece and that's the bit that I guess really gets me around the enrollment of a gardener or the enrollment of a cleaner in a remote area is that you know the UNCRPT talks about that we should be equal citizens before the law and that means we should be able to consume products like everyone else and so those gardeners will know that that you know my child had a disability well, why should they know for those services we're better and it's more economical to use those services that everyone uses because that's what inclusion is that's what citizenship is so we want to make sure that we're holding on to our human rights while still recognizing as you said and um, helen that people are really um there's been some terrible examples of abuse and neglect and and that's really important that we address that so it's the how that that's our challenge is we've got to get some solutions and i think we have lots of them and if the you know the, the commission and and the agency needs to know where people are who they can't find and they need to know what's happening with their money, which I think is a really honest question is, what are you doing with my money? Well, we've got different ways to show them that. Um, and people who self-manage and people who self-direct have really great systems. As I said, choice and control comes with quality and safety. We don't choose bad services. <laughs> you choose great services. And I think we can prove that. So I think for me, for someone within the psychosocial space, it would really my daughter wouldn't still be here after the last two years if that's the only access to workforce that I had, quite frankly. So I think being really clear that everyone has different needs and it's not that we're choosing lesser supports, it's that we're choosing specific person-centred supports around the needs of our people or ourselves, that's what we need to hold on to. Thanks, George. I always have a lot of opinions, but I also have a lot of facts about this. 
one of the facts is that um, we FOI'd the number of people who uh, were abused by registered people who were registered and people who were not. It was far more people who were registered providers that the abuse and neglect happened with. So we all know that this is a FUBAR argument about this keeping us safer. Um, I'm a person who has a background of rape and trauma. Um, you know, I don't trust people easily. And I know I speak for a lot of other autistic people who just don't trust people, take a lot of time to build relationships with people. I think that goes for a lot of women, a lot of disabled men and other people too. Um, you know, really, there's there's not really a good argument other than maybe the unions pushing this because they're hemorrhaging membership or something. There's not really any decent argument to say that this is a good idea. When you look at the research that um, the NDIA has commissioned about thin markets, that's a huge concern for me, especially in regional and remote areas. There's a piece of work that went up recently. It excludes Queensland and Western Australia, the two biggest states. And so when you look at that, I have huge concerns because we know that some services might be on paper present in an area, but really they're not. They've just said that they're registered in a particular regional area. There might be a two year waiting list for services. They might not have any staff. Um, they might not deliver services there at all. You know, so I've done a scoping project about this a few years ago. So we have some real concerns that are substantiated here that um, people with disability won't get the supports that they need if we go down this path. Um, so my view is that it's a, it's a rubbish idea. Um, it, a lot of work would need to be done for this to be implemented safely for people with disability. And it just doesn't make sense. You know, if you wanted to have an art exhibition, you're not going to get the nice lady from Baptist Care to come and stand on the ladder. Um, the same thing if you require any kind of um, skills that, you know, you might get a person who's skilled in that area to just come and work with you safely. Um, we had freedom and choice and control for a reason embedded in this scheme is one of the key principles and they need to drop it now. Thanks, Anne. Uh, flexibility, choice, human rights, all these things are uh, what the NDS was always intended to be about to move the, the, the powerful providers to participants and uh, this recommendation does look like a backward step. Um, I, I do hope that the government listens to people's concerns and ensures that whatever happens, that we're not worse off and that we do get the supports that we need and the choice and control that we need to live a good life. Yes, Georgia, yes. just um, add into that. Everything that everybody said is true and reflects my experience. But I really think that we've got to have a good hard look at the proposition that the regulatory framework and registration actually delivers on any outcomes and, and whether the millions and millions of dollars of investment that has gone into the Quality and Safeguards Commission and other frameworks has actually ensured that people are safer and has actually ensured that people are getting access to the experiences that were guaranteed within the principles of the NDIS of social and economic participation. And I think quite objectively, if you look at the data, the outcomes are not there, except in my experience, and remember I work with large numbers of people who are regarded as very complex and large numbers of providers, 
I have experience with large numbers of providers. And there is one cohort where I can say the outcomes are superior, and that is the cohort of people who have built a self-management framework that is characterised by robust safeguards, a strong emphasis on outcomes, governance structures that enable um, the mechanisms of day-to-day -day support to be delivered in a really, really personalised way. My, my other experience is, is that when people are forced into using registered providers, particularly those who require significant and complex supports. They find themselves subjected to um, service provision policy frameworks that are inflexible, primarily focused on outcomes that meet the provider's needs and not on outcomes that meet the individual's needs. So the question, what does this person require from the service is not the question that's asked. It is, this is what we're going to deliver. So in my opinion, um, this, this recommendation is profoundly flawed, pushes to one side three decades of experience in building the technologies, strategies and structures that make self-management very economic and delivers on good outcomes. Um, it ignores that, whilst at the same time failing to protect those individuals who are still held captive by providers. And I think that instead of this debate about further regulatory mechanisms that simply build on what is already there, we need to have a serious conversation about an outcomes framework that says there are outcomes that align with the UNCRPD that like the very core of the NDIS and we need to see commitment and, and evidence that those, those providers delivering those services to those people who are isolated, disconnected and segregated are actually delivering on those sorts of outcomes um, rather, rather than the kind of quality framework that we have now which does not require providers to deliver on any form of service that aligns with the CRPD, except in a very loose and ambiguous way. Can I just add one comment? Um, um, I, I um, just wanted to share um, our experience with um, uh, registered service providers um, who supported our son directly after he left school, just a, a few hours um, a week. And they um, were very happy to have him, except that after a little while, they said, actually, no, you need to send your own support worker as well because we can't actually manage his what he needs for support. And it, it's, it's kind of ridiculous because that was then double dipping. And, in fact, he needs much less support when he's not in those environments. You know, I can tell you that um, that's my greatest fear is that if, he is forced into environments where he's congregated with other people with disabilities. Um, that um, which will he will he will actually require more support, less long term, and his capacity his the capacity he has built will go backwards. That is my really big fear. Personally, in terms of registration, you know, I think this is a conflation with, with, I think everyone's pointed out the conflation with safeguarding. I don't have a problem with people knowing who all the support workforce is. If we had a very low 
soft, um, you know, touch. You know, you need to tell people you're a support worker and you've got a first aid certificate and those kind of things. I, I don't have so much problem with that. So I guess there's what is the purposes of this registration process? There is some purposes. We can track the workforce. We can make sure they have a first aid certificate. Personally, I want people to have a first aid certificate. You know, though, you know, uh, potentially a police check if we thought it was useful. But it shouldn't be used as a mechanism, as the framework for quality, the only framework for quality and safeguarding. That's that's my concern. I think very soft touch registration. I'm not completely opposed. Yeah, that's right. It needs to make sense. It needs to work. And... Um, what you talk about, and you know, I, I agree with. And when I look at the uh, the recommendations, and they talk about you know, there's going to be a, a portal where every provider is listed, and I, as a participant, can only use services that are on that portal. I I scratch my head and I say, Blindness is not about a closed market where you have to use the disability service options. It was about saying, here's a budget, you can self-manage or plan manage, and you can decide what service is suitable to you. And that works. And it's very interesting to me that we have uh, the, the, the research that the numbers of, of people who, who are using unregistered providers is really, really high. And, and, and to me that says, maybe that's because that's what's working for people. So why would we want to stop what the people want? But I think that we probably need to move on from this topic now. Um, and we're going to go on to our next topic, and that's uh, the the hotline of uh, the review saying that we should find participants who require 24-7 support uh, on the basis that they share with two other NDIS participants. That was a, when I read that, I was like, what? This is group home model stuff. Um, and I, I want to see what people had to say about this. So, Peter, what on earth is this one about? Yeah, like you, George, when I first saw this recommendation, it took my breath away. Given the fact that for the last 50 years, my personal involvement has been focused on getting people out of congregate care and disrupting that make those mechanisms and those practices that congregate, isolate and segregate people. And we have seen example after example from the Disability Royal Commission about what happens when you congregate people. So I'll, I'll try and be as clear as I can about this recommendation because it's relatively straightforward, but the ramifications are significant. At the outset, it says that people with similar levels of need in similar circumstances should have access to similar levels of funding. And for those requiring 24-7 living supports, funding should be on the basis 
that supports are shared, except in specified circumstances. The second is that the reports say that in general, reasonable and necessary funding should be based on an average shared support ratio of one support worker to three participants. They go on to say that while 24-7 living supports are generally funded on a shared basis of one to three in this recommendation, no one should be forced to enter into living arrangement that is not of their choosing. And then um, the final component of this tranche of recommendations around a one to three is that these supports will be a stated support. So, for people that don't know, stated support means that yep. you can't use it flexibly. That's right. Yep. Yep. Um, so, so your ability to use those funds as the equivalent of a personal budget is limited to that purpose. There's a disconnect between we're promoting the idea of a personal budget and we're going to make a big chunk of supports for this cohort stated. So the rationales that the uh, review put forward for this recommendation is firstly, that it's value for money. The other rationale is that the support is likely to be effective and beneficial for the participant, having regard to good practice evidence and rationale. Now, this is particularly problematic, as you can appreciate. I just this is the argument that says um, this decision is good for you and we know what's best for you and what's best for you is that you share with other people. Now, the review acknowledges that there was strong representation from participants and some research that was done that clearly shows that participants in this cohort, those requiring 24-7, don't want to share, don't want to live in group homes, and they don't want to share. It's very clear. Um, however, and, and I'll read this bit because it, it, it literally takes my breath away. It says that living alone is not necessarily in line with community norms. In 2018, only 8.6% of people aged between 25 and 64 without disability lived alone, compared to 19.6% of people with disability. So what the, the review recommendation is saying is we are taking an arbitrary community norm and applying that to this cohort of people and therefore saying because this idea of people living alone, receiving one-on-one -on -one support, isn't in line with a community norm, it is inconsistent and incompatible with the objectives of the NDIS, which is to support people to live and have access to the same lifestyle as everybody else. Oh, Peter, I'm going to just, I can't contain myself. This review <laughs> is going to force people to live together regardless of whether they want to or don't want to. And, and when I look at this, I, I, I always see 
is abuse, violence, exploitation. And if you're already deeply uncomfortable, George, then this is the next statement that comes directly that will make you all even more uncomfortable. And this says, reliance on one-to-one, 24-7 living supports can foster dependency, increase risks of exploitation, reduce focus on capacity building and opportunities to increase social and economic participation. Now, I scoured the reports to find the submissions upon which they based that outlandish proposition. And there are two submissions. One is from a community group where they express an anecdotal opinion that uh, one-on-one should be reduced as a generic statement. The other is from an individual. So those are the only two upon which they are basing that proposition. As a result of that, um, what they are also saying is that these principles to limit access to arrangements that are based around people living by themselves should only be approved in very limited circumstances. Um, there you go. Thanks, Peter. Sam, I can see you smiling under your mask. <laughs> You've got some thoughts. Oh, I do have some thoughts. Um, the DPOA Australia put out the um, put out a uh, document. If you Google uh, segregation DPOA, you'll find it. It was about um, segregation and being discrimination in response to some of the messaging from the Royal Commission. And um, all of the disability sector signed it, and it had some really strong messaging about you know, this being illegal, that you can't deny people's human rights or limit them based on um, your existence of impairment, your diagnosis or your disability, that we need to recognise that segregation and segregated facilities is unequal and it's discriminatory, um, that people with disability being able to participate and being included is dependent on segregation ending. You know, we shouldn't have to live with other people and be separated separated from the rest of the world and upholding our individual autonomy and that we also must replace substitute decision-making arrangements with fully supported decision-making arrangements. And I feel like we've come full circle, George, because it's where I met you when I was at a conference, a disability conference for the NDIS, and I was um, shouting at a man who was talking about disability villages, if you remember, and I stood up and said, isn't this just putting lipstick on a pig? We're talking about institutions here. And so George cracked up laughing and that was how we met. This was about a million years ago. And I really do feel like this is going backwards. This is about, you know, economic rationalisation. This is about harmonising um, disability with aged care and cost savings. And, you know, a lot of this, I feel, has been a foregone conclusion. Um, this taking this forward would be not just a backward step for the disability rights movement but would be contrary to the um, UNCRPD and I think um, for Australia you know we we just can't do this. I share Peter's concerns very much about the um, SDA environment 
uh, there's a number of people that we are privately advocating for, you know, apart from the work that PWDA does, um, just friends who are stuck in services and who have had to fight to get an SDA apartment in the first place and then they're trapped by um, providers who want to take their money, put them in with different people, um, take away their rights. It's it's just, it doesn't end. So we need to make sure that, people, that Article 19 of the Convention on the Rights of People with Disability is upheld, that people are able to live where they want to live, where is best for them, and that they get to make up their mind about that and decide who they live with, if anybody at all. Um, no no offence, George, but I don't want to live with you. I feel like I'd develop an allergy to all of your plants. And um, and I'm sure you wouldn't like to have lesbian fan art on the wall. <laughs> and Kevin Arsenal is lesbian fan art. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for outing me um, on your podcast, um, George. Um, <laughs> um, I, look, I, I was, I'm, I'm really worried about this as well, and I think... Um, because at the same time, when you read through the section on home and living supports, it talks a lot about, you know, people being able to experiment with different models and that they'll be, get money to be able to do that. And for me, um, I and, and going through this process at the moment for my, over many years, because this is not a straightforward process to go through um, transitioning um you know, in our situation, someone from, uh, you know, the family home environment into the community environment. We've had a lot of trouble already in the current system navigating um, innovative ways of, of looking at home and living supports. I think that's for me, is one of the big failures of the NDIS so far, that we've seen a kind of continuation of group homes and so forth, um, and very hard to find support to try something different. These new set of reforms um, see, they are they are going to enable people to try and test things out. Uh, and one, as I was, um, one of the things we've tried to look at is independent living options, which is you know maybe sharing a house with someone who doesn't have a disability, who you know might provide some you know um, support in you know being in the house at night or whatever that might be. Those are the kinds of options we were interested in exploring. But in fact. Only 747 people, I think, in the report has actually have used those options, despite those being the kind of ways that the NDIS was promoting so-called more um, choice and control in living arrangements. So what worries me now is even though they say they hope that more innovation can occur, this recommendation is shutting off any capacity to do that. Um, and I, I can't quite see how it's going to work. So the devil is in the detail with this, but we must must um, make sure that we don't lose the capacity to make choice and control. And for people with disabilities, no matter how complex their needs are, having the choice of who they live is a fundamental with is a fundamental human right. And um, you know, I, I'm very concerned about this. And as people have pointed out, congregation and abuse go side by side. Uh, so I just wanted to remind us that the Disability Royal Commission in Recommendation 7.43, there is a roadmap to phase out group homes within 15 years. So why would you have these two recommendations sitting alongside each other with copious amounts of evidence about what's happened in those congregate care settings and the risk and abuse that it creates? So, um, George, I'll, I'll just um, add... 
if you accept the proposition that one to three is simply a way of calculating funding, putting aside the erroneous nature and almost ableist implications of that, there is no evidence whatsoever presented by the review that equates the allocation of that level of funding with opportunities for social and economic participation of those participants allocated that funding. There's no evidence presented for that at all. Another incontestable fact, based on my personal experience of working alongside thousands of individuals, is that it doesn't matter what the review says about people not being forced into group homes. This will give a mandate to the agency and to unscrupulous providers to promote group home living as their go-to solution and will almost certainly significantly undermine our ability to pursue more flexible arrangements. And I know as a fact, prior to the review even starting, the NDIA was promoting that their benchmark was one to three shared. And we now have people being told by the agency home and living planners, things like this. We acknowledge your request to be placed in accommodation by yourself and have taken this into consideration and feel that you may benefit more from sharing with two other people for the social aspect due to your current age. Speechless. We need to go back to the UNCRPD. Uh, the Child and Rights of People with Disabilities, Article 19 says people have the right to decide where they live. And uh, that, that, for many of us, is not in a group home. Guys, we've run out of time. I thought we'd get through five topics, but. We only got through two. So we're going to have a part two to this podcast. I uh, want to thank you all for joining me today and look forward to the rest of this conversation in part two. See you soon. Thanks, Thanks so much. much. Bye. That's all we on today's episode of Reasonable Necessary. Look out for our second part of our deep dive into the end of the as you know, we love your feedback, so please share your thoughts with us in the comment section below. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.